0: like you to open your Bible once again this morning to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, the last two verses of the chapter, we're all familiar with this. If you've been in church very much at all in your life, you're familiar with these verses. They're used a lot and they're spoken of a lot. We call it the great commission or the great charge. It's from Jesus to us. It's instruction on what he wants us to do. And he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The Bible says that we are to go into all the world, and two things should happen. One, we are to make disciples, not see how many hands we can get raised up at a revival meeting, see how many people we can come forward, or how many conversions that we can write down on our bulletin and advertise to the rest of the world. That's fine if they're legitimately saved, but the Bible says We are to teach those people the very things that are required of them to exhibit and display a true conversion, which leads to discipleship. He told us that we are to make disciples. In fact, the first word, go ye therefore into all the world, teach all nations. The word teach is really the word disciple. Disciple all nations. Teach them to do what the Lord has told us to do. See, the Scripture is given to us as what we teach. This is what we share with people. It's what you should hide in your heart. It's what you should become familiar with and know and study to show yourself approved and so forth. It's the Word of God. And this is what we trust in and rely on and stay with. This is what we teach people. Whether it's in season or out of season, this is what God has given us to do. And it's interesting that Scripture only is what God responds to. It's not our cries of passion. It's not our emotional outbursts and our attempt to be how sincere we can before God. It's God responds to his word. And to plead with God apart from his word is really to waste a lot of time because a lot of people do that. They've learned certain things, but they don't live according to that word. Now, that's what we have to teach. We teach people. They don't always like it. You don't always like it. But we teach it because it's what's required of us. It's the only thing on this earth that God said he would watch over to perform. It's the only thing, the only existing thing that God honors, even above all his name. And he puts a great emphasis on his name, but he says he honors his word even above his name. Now, last week, we began with this. A disciple is one who continues in the word. We would call this the faith life. John chapter 8, verse 31, he said, if you continue in my word, then Teaching is different from preaching in that preaching just, you read something and you go and you tell a story about it. But teaching, you get specific. You bring out specifics. You detail it so that there's no lack of understanding what God wants or what the Bible says. For example, if you continue in my word, we don't have to try and make that hard. I know people think, well, you're too hard. No, I'm not. Nobody who's quoting the Bible is being too hard. Nobody that teaches what the Scripture says, whether it's about sin or discipleship, is being too hard. We've gotten soft. We have dismissed ourselves so often from having to toe the line and live according to his statutes because somehow that sounds legalistic or far-right, dogmatic. And it just takes all the joy. No, it doesn't. That's where the joy comes. He said, "If it's a choice, if you continue in my word, continue means to stay with it and don't turn away from it. Oh, I can't handle that too much. If you stay with it, he said, if you continue in my word, then are you what? My disciples. You are those who follow me. A disciple is a pupil, an adherent to the teacher and his ways. A student." Like a student in a class, it follows a teacher's teaching. He said, if you continue in my word then, by this we'll know you are truly a disciple of Jesus if you continue in his word. And he said in verse 32, and you shall know the truth because you do that by continuing in it. And you shall know the truth, and the truth is designed to make you free. We call that deliverance. It's not some special deliverance session that is spoken of here to deal with you or some private meeting that sometimes is necessary. But he says, if you, having put your hand to that plow, if you will leave them there and stay with what he says and quit arguing about this and complaining about that and wanting to compromise, just stay with it. He said the very things that have bound you your whole life, all the bondages that you face, all your fears, your apprehensions, your attitude problems, whether your mouth or your mind or traits in your life, things that just hold you down and ruin your testimony, all of that will go because as the light of his word comes into your life and you begin to see it, the effect it has is to determine your will. You know, that is right. And you begin to say, okay, Lord, I'll do that. It's a step. It's slow. It's little by little. It's called growth. You're growing. But you only grow as you know. Only knowers are growers. Amen? And it seems to indicate in John 8, 31 and 32 that the only way you can know the truth is by continuing in the truth. Listening to it and hearing about it is one thing. Even taking a step in that direction is one thing. But the people who really come to the light and begin to see what it means are those who stay with it. And those who stay with it are those who begin to experience the power of that light, of that word in your life, because it begins to replace all the other things that held you back and held you down. You were afraid. You're scared of this. You're scared of that. And more and more, the word comes in and begins to say, this is the way. Walk in. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He that dwelleth in the secret place shall abide. And he goes on to say that nothing shall by any means harm him. And you begin to see the reality of that and your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And your faith begins to embrace that. It, it becomes real to you. This is the work of the Spirit illuminating your mind to see this. And the more you do that, the more you want to continue in this Word. And the more your discipleship, your true following of Christ, becomes evident to everybody around you. You see, the more you know, the more you feed. Christ is the bread of life, isn't he? Not only is Jesus the bread of life, but he said man lives not by bread alone, but by the Word of God. He is the bread that came down from heaven. He's a living word. And the more you feed on that word, the more you partake of that word, you begin to experience a release, again, from bondage. I can tell you this. Lots of Christians are bound. I'm talking about Christians like us. Many ways we're bound. We don't want to speak up. We don't want to witness. We don't want to do a lot of things for fear of the failure, fear of what people think, fear of losing something, fear of coming up short. In a lot of ways, we don't respond to God because of fears. That's bondage. And it's not some kind of laying hands on you, deliverance session that you need. You just need to make up your mind that you're going to do what God said. You see, if you resist the devil, James said he will flee from you. I don't care where he's been, how he's been, all he's done. If you resist him, he will flee. And you resist him with what? The word. It's called the sword of the Spirit. It's a weapon that you use. Jesus spoke to mountains. He spoke to the devil. He spoke to trees. When he spoke, things happened. So can you. But there's one warning here that we didn't mention last week. Let me mention this so I can go on. One thing you have to be concerned about is the warning that Jesus gave about this. He said, the cares of this world choke the word. Your busyness, I believe I could just about speak on this the rest of the morning about busyness. Just busy. And the devil wants to keep you busy and keep you doing things that take up your time that are unnecessary busy. Just busy, busy, busy. Schedules and busy and busy. And the Bible said one thing that chokes the word so that it doesn't bring forth fruit, doesn't deliver. One of the things that chokes the word and keeps it from working in people's lives is the world. Our toying with, participating with, and Getting involved in the world. We live in the world. We have to use what it has. But it's never meant and designed to control us. To love the world is to not love God. And there's so much the world gives you that you think you must love. Because it becomes such a desire, such an urge. I've got to have that. You live planning for it. All your resources are geared to it because there's this lust and desire and passion for the world. And the Bible says when that begins to take the place of your desire for God, for the plow and the kingdom of heaven, it begins to choke the word out of your life so that you, you still remember it, but it doesn't have that pop like it used to have because your life gets full of clutter and things happen. So that's a warning that the Lord gives us in Matthew 13 and verse 22. Now, secondly, a second thing about disciple, because the title of the message is for those who want to be a disciple, and I'm assuming that you do, that you want to go all the way. Amen? Well, see if you can handle this one. Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. Jesus said, and this is about as clear as he could make it, it be about as popular today in today's society and today's thinking as a pork chop would be in Israel. But this is what he said. This is what Jesus said. Verse 25, great multitudes were following. Now, what would you do today if you were a preacher and you had great multitudes? I think you'd change your message a little bit, talking about not all of us, I hope not all of us, but I think if one day you came to church and there were so many people, they were in the back, sitting out in the yard, speakers out there all over town, across the road, and they just had to hear what you had, and great multitudes. I'm not so sure you wouldn't kind of power down a little bit and get sweet. I just love y'all. You <laughs> know, you start talking that sugar stick stuff. Sugar stick is what everybody likes That was an old word years ago for preachers who didn't say what they ought to say, but said what people like to hear. We call that sugar sticks. But Jesus looked up, and here comes a multitude. Now, how big was the multitude? I don't know. One day he fed 5,000. That was a great multitude. Maybe there was that many here. I don't know. But here was a great multitude, a chance to make your mark, a chance to lead all these people and maybe get something started. You know what he said? He turned to all these people. Now, here's a message for today. I'm glad all of you came, he would say. I'm glad you all showed up. I'm glad you all have an interest in what I have been doing. I hope it's more about what I've been saying than what I've been doing, but I suspect that all of you have come to see the signs and the wonders and the miracles. And who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? To see somebody raised up off of this or come up out of that or a new eye or a new limb or leprosy or a lunatic become... No- I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? I would too. But listen to what Jesus said with his biggest crowd. Verse 26, he said, If any man come to me and hate not his father, his mother, his wife, his children his brethren and his sisters, and yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now what a text. What a message would that be? How would that fly today? For the inauguration of the president. They asked Tom Hamilton to speak at his inauguration. What if you said that? What if you said that to those throngs of, would they need the Lord? Is it possible that a bunch of them are lost? Maybe a whole bunch, a big, great, big, lot bunch of them? Lot bunch means a lot. Would it be wrong to bring a salvation message? Well, you say this is political. Oh, I see. Then it's not anything to do with God. It's a show. No, I don't mean that. Well, okay, let me just go back to Jesus here because this wasn't political. This was an opportunity to make people clear on what God requires. I'm glad you came. I'm glad the power of God works in my life, and so many people are getting free, people without hope spend all they had in the medical world, never get help, I'm glad that those people in a moment and instantly are getting cured and healed and liberated and set free and loose from their bondages. I'm glad. And I'm glad all of you came because I know you're as excited about that as as anybody would be. But let me tell you something. This is only momentary and temporary. What you're seeing is just for a moment. This will come and this will go. But what I want to talk to you about is eternal. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're just a church member. If you want to be a disciple, the words he used, he said, it's all or nothing. You must hate your father, your mother, your wife, sisters, your brethren, even your own life. And if you cannot or if you will not, while you're a nice enough person and a good guy and everybody likes you and all that, you cannot cannot be my disciple. Now, this second point is about total loyalty to God, total loyalty. God gives us no room. If we want to follow him, there's no room to follow anybody or anything else. This is perhaps the most difficult principle that Jesus ever taught. I would say it's perhaps the most difficult principle he ever taught because here's people who hadn't heard much in their life, they had never amounted to much spiritually. And here comes God, here comes Emmanuel, God with us in a human body, as God. And he looks at all these suffering people who've come to be set free and he says, If you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a true follower of mine and stay with me and be what I want, these are the conditions that are required. And he begins to talk about hate. Now, that's pretty tough for us today because hate is tough. I mean, hate in our thinking is something despicable, something we loathe. For some people, it's like, Brussels sprouts. I mean, who could like that stuff? You. Or grits. How many of you love grits? Some of you. I like grits. But to hate? To hate is to not want anything to do with. To hate is to turn away. Your life, absolutely out of my life. I don't, get away from me. Mother, father, sisters, wife. I don't get it. I don't, something's not clicking here because Jesus said we're to honor our parents. Honor your mother and your father. Love your brethren. Didn't he say in John 13 and 34 and 5, a new commandment I give unto you that as I have loved you, you love others, and by this shall all the world know that you're my disciples. So how then if we're supposed to love as evidencing his love in us, love in others, well, then how are we supposed to turn around and hate people? No, get away. I hate that. I don't want anything to do with that. What do we do with it? How are we going to handle this? I think he wants us to understand that spiritually speaking, we are to hate anything and everything that tries to separate us from God or take the place of of your allegiance or your loyalty to God in this life. Whatever it is, whatever it is, anything that God would judge, you don't want any part of. But let's describe hate first by looking first of all at love. Love obviously is a devotion that you have. Love is a desire that you want fulfilled. I'm talking about true love, spiritual love. I'm not talking about this eros love in the day between sexes and all of that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about love as God would have us to love, to care, to be genuinely concerned, to care, to love. Love, as I've said so many times, and I really believe, the great expression of love is commitment. How you me know that God loved the world? How do you show it? He gave. He gave to the world something the world cannot manufacture, something the world cannot get. He gave his son. His son came to love, to love by giving himself for the likes of you and me who were totally undeserving. We were nothing that was right. All we like, sheep had gone astray. There was not a right one amongst us. And yet the Bible says in Romans 5 that while we were yet sinners, he loved us. That is, he did something for you that could never be done, but the something he did was so necessary to your salvation and that he made a way for you to be saved, even going to the cross and dying. There had to be the death of the righteous. And yet we are guilty. We can't die for anybody. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Salvation is totally and completely a thing of grace. God alone can save a man. You believe that? We're helpless and without hope in this world. Christ saw our need. God loved us, came to this world, lived perfectly before God so that he was worthy of the resurrection. And he took our place, died in our stead, purchased us. We are called in Ephesians five thirty-one the purchased possession. We belong to him. Y'all remember top value stamps, unless you're over a certain age, but the top value stamps. They wanted far too much for us, 800 books for one of us. And Jesus walked in with trader load after trader load after trader load of stamps and purchased all of his people. If he hadn't, we'd still be in there, and death would still be staring us in the faith, and a righteous God would have every just and righteous reason to judge us all. And yet Jesus paid the price. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, and you know the rest of that. Because that's what happened. It's the only reason we're here. That's the major player today at our communion. Life is all about Jesus. Listen to me. Your life has worth to him because of your willingness to commit it to him. And anybody can say that, and anybody can take that first step. But it's daily after daily after day. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. Somebody will. You know that? I will. Will you? Will you enter into the kingdom when your life is done? Folks, these things in the Bible are written that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to hope. You can know it if you believe it. But if you believe it, you show it. And the word for show is observe. We observe his commandments. And in this way, we are demonstrating that our heart was truly sincere when we said yes to Jesus. Amen? Amen. I know a lot of Calvinists who would tell you that not everybody that raised their hand and said yes to Jesus meant it. Some people wanted to get saved because they wanted to see their dead mother, dead grandfather, or, or their wife, or a child that they didn't know, and I want to see them. And, or, that's not why you get saved. Or i got these problems with alcohol and cigarettes, and it's just killing me. I want to get saved. That's not why you get saved. You come to the Lord because you're a sinner. Because your sin has separated between you and God and your sin stays attached to you since you went to church, and it still plagues you because at some point the new birth was just a a message and it wasn't a reality. But when it happens, when you're truly born again and a new life is deposited inside of you and an old life dies, you become a new creature in Christ. All things become new, including this word. You begin to see things like you've never seen it before. I'm speaking from my own experience. And I grew up of all places in a Christian church, Disciples of Christ church. What about that? But it was good in the sense that when I came to the Lord, I didn't have to unlearn anything because I never knew anything. I was never taught anything. It was just a social organization. And when I begin to see what happened on the cross, Christ had great meaning to me, still does. Jesus is worth my very best. Jesus is worth all of my loyalty. I was bought with a price. I do not belong to me any longer. I have no right to say no or I'm not ready to God when he speaks. I have no right to do that because I have given myself to him if I'm saved. I gave him my life. I gave him my will. I gave him my heart. It's in this giving process, what I'm describing, what he did and what the response that we have. This is called love. It's a transference of your desires and your allegiances you have in this world to him. You can still go to this and do that. You can still go shopping and all of that. Everything is done now in the context of what would please him. A man loves his wife not because she performs, because she's a good cook or whatever. He loves her because he told God he would. She loves him not because he brings home the bacon and does this and does that. She loves him because she took an oath. They both did to commit themselves to their mate. You can't say, well, if he's not going to do it better, I'm not. No, you've missed it. You missed it. Love is a commitment. Love is not a yo-yo. It doesn't go up and down. Listen, God loved you when you were down, didn't he? He did. He loved you when you were down. He lifted you up, and he loves you still. He doesn't love you more. It's love. You can't even learn about it and find it out because it's beyond your understanding. Love is that immensity of God whereby he does and gives, and we can't understand why. Why did he save you all? Why did he save anybody in this room? Why? What he, because, well, he needed a good voice in the church. No. Well, because I was a student. No. I don't know why. If you had been God, would you have saved this crowd? No, but God's from the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 said, from the foundation of the world, God knew who his people were. And in time, as your life came to exist on this earth, God, who knows all the hairs of your head and every step you take, divinely arranged one day for you, to be convicted of your sins. but the grace of God that brings salvation comes. And then he gave you faith. You couldn't believe in God unless he gave you that. You can acknowledge God. Sinners do that. The devil knows about God. They can't trust him. But when faith comes into your heart, you can, and you do. Now, that's love. Why would God do that for any of us? Any of us. Why would God save me? As raunchy and as rank as... Why would he save me? I don't know. I can tell you this this morning standing here. I am eternally grateful for the fact that he did. I was never worthy. I was never deserving. Never. Who was? Nobody. There was not a righteous one amongst us. And God so loved the world that he did something that's caused us to be saved. Now, a part of that salvation is for us to come to the recognition that he is altogether right and we're altogether wrong when there's a controversy. That'll be the next point. And that we are going to submit ourselves to his way. And if my wife gets in the way, as Job's wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? I guess today a lot of people say, yeah, that's a pretty sensible woman. She was a foolish woman. What else do you have without God? You have nothing. What do you have when you say, I love him, but all your time is spent on the world or sports or things or whatever, whatever it is? What do you have? You have affection for something besides God. Your loyalty is all his. How many of you know what the first commandment is in Exodus 20, the very first commandment? Thou shalt have, that was right out of the box, number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't make any images of God. I don't need any pictures. I don't need any birds, and I don't need anything. You've never seen God. They weren't painters and sculptors in Israel. They were farmers. They didn't make things. The Greeks did that. God is the invisible God. You are to believe what he says, not what he looks like. People would worship. If there was a picture of Jesus, they would worship it today. If the Catholics got it, they would. They'd worship it. My daddy was a Catholic. I don't know if he would have, but they would. And so we got this picture in our mind, this idea that God, who gave us all of this, gave us this personal relationship that we can all have with him that we can know him and have the light of that knowledge come in and humble you and teach you how to love, how to devote, like that word commitment. I'm sure Bonnie and I have lasted 50 years, not because I've been such a really super husband, because truth be known, I doubt that. But the fact known I have got it better than I deserve because as I've now learned, Jesus Jesus puts in our heart that to love is to commit. You can't let anything get in the way. Again, the first commandment, no other gods. No pictures, no paintings. Don't even take his name in vain. That was the third one. That's the first three commandments all had to do with our understanding and our relationship to God. And number one is there are no other gods. Not the Kentucky Wildcats or the claw hammer tigers, or anybody else. You know, it's not wrong, I suppose, to get involved in it or watch it and be a part of that. I think we all do to a measure, but your devotion is to God. Your loyalty and your devotion to God. There can be no other gods before that. He is first and foremost. And that's one of the understandings that the Bible gives us about what love is. Love is a commitment of yourself to God. Now what happens then when love gets distorted? Remember the verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 in describing the last day and some of the signs of the last day? He said one of those signs is that men will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Hedonism is a fun-loving, pleasure-loving time. You're living in a hedonistic age in which man's energies and resources are devoted to having fun. There's nothing wrong with having fun, but there are things that are more important than fun. How about parenting? That's no fun. See, those that raise kids are laughing. Parenting isn't, isn't fun, but it's so necessary and so vital. God expects us to raise children to be godly seed. Takes a lot of time. You've got to give up some things to do that. There's a kind of devotion that you have to have. If you don't care, then you don't care what your kids do. Give them five bucks, tell them to go to town. Get out of your hair so you can have your pleasure to do what you want to do because what you love is yourself. I mean, you love yourself. We have to go to that next point in just a minute. You have to deal with yourself because your biggest enemy is yourself. Is you, your attitude about yourself. Me, mine, mine, my way. What we love, folks, so many times is ourselves. We acknowledge God in his way because we're religious. But what we love, when it comes right down to it, we love God. If we don't want to do what he said, if his way that we're to observe and continue in does not fit into my schedule, what do we do? We get other opinions. The Bible talks about itching ears in the last day, turning away your ears from the truth and turning aside to fables, which are man's versions or man's tales. Because that's what self does. It's not in me to just naturally want to love God. I love what he can do for me and what I want him to do when I cry out, oh, God, do something. But see, I love me. And I like to, as a preacher to, in, in the church, I go to church, I want the preacher to, to preach me-ism and you-ism and us-ism and good-ism, and we're all going to heaven. When anybody dies, why, yeah, he's good soul. He's playing golf on the big course up in there. Worldly stuff like that. But love, whenever your love is for the things of this world and for the pleasures of this world, then your love is channeled the wrong direction. It gets you in trouble with the Lord. God wants your devotion. God wants your loyalty. He wants you and your ways. Now, hate, let's go back to hate. Hate is the opposite of that. If you don't hate what God saved you from, you'll go back to it or you'll tolerate it. Or you'll let it side up to you and lay out in the yard like a dog. If you don't hate what caused God to reach a verdict against you, or he would have if he hadn't saved you. If you don't hate what God judges, then eventually he might have to judge you or chastise you. You have to be determined that when you turn away from your sins, I don't know why people get so quiet when you talk about sin because it's the most natural thing in the world. It's the easiest thing to do is sin or quit, give up. Hate is to hate your sin. But in the context here, when Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple, you're going to have to despise the alternative to me. Sometimes it's your family. Sometimes your family doesn't want you to go to that church or hear that word or not do a holiday, not do Christmas, or not eat the Easter bunny's ears or whatever it is they don't, you know, that they really are offended that you're doing. And sometimes people in the family can get pretty tight. If you want your inheritance, of course, some of them say, "That what well, you got. But turn to Matthew 10 for just a moment. Let me share one thing with you. Matthew chapter 10 And verse 34 through 37. Listen to this. Jesus said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Now, what does a sword do? Now, think about it. I want you to get the bigger picture here. The Word of God is sharper. Remember Hebrews talks about the the Word of God is living and active. Are y'all with me? And sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, could it be here that he's referring to the effect of the word if believed in a man's or a woman's life? He said, I'm bringing you what amounts to a sword. Personally, this sword, two-edged sword, it divides and cuts asunder between what is spiritual and what is fleshly. Makes a distinction. The word does. It's clear. But he says in Matthew 10, 34, think not that I am come to send peace on this earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And I would dare say today that the liberal vein of thinking in the church today can't handle that. Well, that doesn't make sense. Why would the Prince of Peace come to bring a sword and separate or divide? Well, what divides is the word, but it's designed to save, but it'll also cause you to make a decision, take a stand, make you very unfavorable. I know in my own personal family, when I got saved, the effect it had on my brother and, well, to some degree to my dad. I know how they felt. I know how they reacted and they responded. I can only imagine what they thought about my newfound religion. I can only imagine what they thought of it. I can only imagine. But I am sure it wasn't what they wanted because it changed my life. There came a time I had to make a distinction in either declaring what I believed or in compromising what I believe in order to gain and keep the favor of my family. One of the two. I know the response you get. I know what people think. But I remember how distant I felt, how alone and aloof that I felt, and all of that. I know the feeling. But at the same time, I knew that to please God, I had no choice. Either I'm going to be loyal to God, I'm going to be loyal to my mother and father. Now, if they disagree with something that I'm doing or direction that I'm going to take because it's God-inspired, I will have to suffer the consequences of it. We're coming at a time, I'll just go ahead and warn you about this prophetically, in which uh, laws are going to be passed that's going to prevent you or forbid you to speak what you believe in any place other than this room because it'll be so offensive to other people and you're gonna be put to the test. They're gonna drag you before governors and rulers for a testimony. And you're gonna find out where you are. You wouldn't have been drugged there at all unless you had a conviction about this. And the reason that you did not cave in to the pressure was because you hate what it would do to your relationship to God. I don't want anything else between God and me. I don't want that kind of thing to happen in my life. Anything that compels me to have my loyalty to something else rather than to God, I must hate. It's just something that you must despise. That won't happen to everybody because a lot of people give in real easy. How easy is it to miss church? How easy is it to talk yourself out of the insignificance of another meeting? Can't you always go to church? Why would you move from where you grew up to somewhere you've never been to go to church? Don't the people tell you before you left that there's churches everywhere? Because to the average person, church doesn't mean anything. It's a socially good place to go where in some cases there are legitimately saved people there. But so much of it is just religion. And one day you got saved and and you realize that if I just stick here because everybody wants me here, I'm going to be like them. And I hate the idea that's going to happen because, God, I don't want anything between us. And so you make decisions that people are turned off by it. and That's going to happen sometimes, whether it's your wife or your children. How many men or women have had to go through things because their convictions have got between them and their wife or their husband? I mean, this caused a division. You could get out of that division just like years ago a man told his wife, and years I got saved, if you don't quit going to that church, because she was really getting on fire for the Lord, if you don't quit going to that church, I'm going to start drinking. <laughs> so she quit going. She quit going. And today I don't know if she ever came back. It was a fatal decision if she didn't. She should have hated the idea that I would give up Jesus Christ for you or for her or for me or for anybody, for your career or anything else. The only thing that is important in this life is your relationship to Jesus Christ. You cannot love your life in this world and keep it. Remember the verses in John chapter 12, he said, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life. It doesn't mean he despises the fact that he's alive. It just means that what is called life and self, the me, I will not allow it to rule me. And all of its desires to do its own thing and deny God, I hate it. And the only way I can keep my life in this world is to hate the things that want to separate me from my life. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, this is what you're going to have to do. Turn to John 3 for just a moment, just a brief moment, John chapter 3. I think this is the problem. John 3 and verse 19, it says that men loved. Now he said in the, First chapter of John, that, you know, that he was light and that light is coming to the world. He was that light in John 1, 8, and then John chapter 3 and verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men loved, desired darkness more than light. What if I told you the same condition is lodged in many people in the church? As long as the church feeds their way, their ideas, and their goals, and makes me happy, and I'll stay with you. But the day they begin taking stands and getting off on this other, Jesus said, the Bible said, that's the day I'm leaving. What do you love? What do you love? Jesus said to Peter, Peter? Lovest thou me more than these? These are your friends. Remember what Peter said? Not the way you want me to. You ask me if I'm committed and agape love? No. I've already proved that. I've denied you three times. I've done everything wrong that a man can do, and I cannot sit here and look you in the eye at this brokenhearted moment of my life and tell you that I love you, Lord, because I really don't love you the way I'm supposed to. I will. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Didn't he? Asked him three times. Asked him three times. Because when Peter finally turned that corner, he never, listen, he never looked back. Even to the time of his death, he would not count his life dear some way to be kept because when his time came, it was a pleasure to give his life for the service of God. Just what he said. He loved this world, you lose your life. You lose your life in this world, you'll gain it into eternal life. But men love darkness, John 3, 19. Men love darkness more than light see, our lives belong to God, and because our lives belong to God, he has a right to them. And when he has a right to us, he can give us a commission, a command, or an idea, or whatever, point his finger in some direction he wants us to go, and it is our duty and responsibility as loving disciples to respond. Now, when it comes to why we don't, we are to recognize as Christians that we live right now, our lives on this earth are for the sake of Jesus. We're like money in his hand. He can spend us for whatever pleases him. Whatever gains is to him, he can use us. He can send us wherever he wants to. He can put a message in our heart and use us because he knows we'll declare it. He should. I mean, some people are that devoted and that loyal. Not everybody. We belong to him. And we don't do things in our life because we want to. We do things for his sake. He gives us the freedom to go to do things, to go here, go there, take a vacation, go hunting, go fishing, go shopping. You can do that. So long as that does not control your decisions and you put him outside of that. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. So it's not wrong to enjoy things in this life. It's just that things in this life should not control us because money can be a God. It can be an ornery God because it can bring death into your life. The love of money is the root of all evil. I think the very core of our temptations it's when we are confronted with the Word of God. Like I was years ago, knew, didn't know anything, and everything was strangely different. I'd never read the Bible. I couldn't understand it. And when I could begin to understand it and somebody was teaching it, it was like a whole different realm. It demanded time. It demanded attention. No longer could I casually Sunday morning hear the word and go home and and not think about it because it was becoming something that it's like God is speaking to you. You better listen. You don't have to, but you can, and you better, and you need to listen to what he's saying because the devil comes up whenever this word in the morning you get up and you're thinking about it. You know, boy, doesn't the devil say something like hath? God said, isn't that the way the devil does when you hear the word and you get convicted about it and you're all tore up today and you go home and tomorrow you're not near as tore up. You're not all flustered about what you heard and your life isn't hanging in the balance and you're, now it's a new day and you got a good night's sleep and the devil says, you really think what you heard, that's what God meant? This is so common today, and people may not say this, but it is so common amongst Christians and religious circles. How many times have people say, well, I don't see it that way, and I don't want to? then how do you see it? Well, it's private. Yeah. Are there two ways to see one truth? Then we should search for the one truth. Well, if I saw it that way, I wouldn't be able to be a Catholic anymore, praise the Lord. You might get delivered. I got delivered from the Christian church I was in because not that its doctrines were bad. They used to say in their disciples of Christ platform, we have no creed but the Bible. Well, you can't do better than that. Problem is, it's just spoken of but not lived where I lived. Then when it became real, this is the way walk ye in it. The question is, how loyal are you willing to be to God? Because about the time you start to put your hands on that plow, the devil comes up. He says, hath God said. What did the devil tell Eve about the word? Didn't he begin to make God sort of an adversary? He said, well, you know, the reason God didn't want you to eat of that fruit is not because it's not good. Of course, everything he created was good. wouldn't say he created something evil because everything was good. When he created, he said, it is good. Now, he told you not to eat of that fruit. Let me let you in on something. He knows in Genesis 3, 5 that the day you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. And he didn't want any competition. And he goes back again to our next point about pride of who I am. I can be God. I can be like that. Yeah, give me a bite, man. Let me have a chomp of that. And here we all are, lost in our sins and needing a Savior because of that. The very core of your temptations is that somebody or something talks you out of what you've heard, distorts it, modifies it, waters it down, changes it, making you equal with God by saying, well, that's not how I see it. Therefore, you become an expert on level playing field with God. You don't see what he said. I don't see it that way. So whatever he said is not what I see. You have no right to say that unless you got a scripture. You see, if you want to be a disciple, if you and I want to be disciples, if we really want to live in this life, live a life that he says at the end of it, well done, thou good and uh, first point, faithful servant. You continued in my word. You observed the things that I have commanded you. You didn't back off. You had to wrestle. There were struggles, but you made it. And look at all the things that used to control you. They quit controlling you because you have a new way of living, and this word has changed your life and given you hope. There's power in all of this. And when it came down to what you're going to do with your life and what's the right choices, you chose God. And your father was pleased to bless you and keep you and give you all these things. That's what he wants. Now, that's two points, two little minor things about being disciples. You're supposed to say minor. Now, the next one kind of ups the ante a bit. We won't do it now, but it goes back to Luke 14 again. And Jesus talks about your own self, about denying yourself, hating yourself. Actually, talks about crucifying your flesh by carrying a cross. If you don't have a cross daily, you're not a disciple. You're a good person, good fellow, like you, enjoy being around you. I'm sure you mean well and you're honest and you're a hardworking person, but that's not what gets you in heaven. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless your word to your people. Make them to see what you've said, not what I've said. You open their eyes, I can't. I ask you to keep us on that straight and narrow path, Lord, that leads to life. In this world, while we're being tested and refined, find us faithful. Find us loyal. Keep us in your care, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: i yeah. i